This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Thank you again for tuning in to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia. I'm so excited to bring you today's interview because I had the amazing privilege of talking to Veronica Hinky, who is the author of the really, really fun book, Last Night of the Titanic, Unsinkable Dining, Drinking, and Style, which is all about the food and the drink and the clothes and all those really fun, pretty little details of the time. So I really hope you enjoy uh, my interview with her as much as I enjoy doing it. I'm really, really excited to have you. Um, I've always wanted to have my own talk show, so I'm just giving it to myself. So I want—I would really like if you introduced yourself and told me maybe a little bit about your journey specifically to Titanic before I get into your book and everything. Well, first of all, thank you so much for um, talking with me today and, and reaching out. It was so great to hear from you. And I, I, I love talking about the Titanic because I think so many of the stories are so inspiring for people today. Yeah. I love talking about food trends and, you know, food styles of different eras. And that's what led me down this path um, of the book. I had always researched Titanic, but specifically about food after I had been a food writer for many years. Mm-hmm. And when it was remember in 2012 when it was the 100th anniversary of the Titanic? Yes. As we approached that, Alexia, I just had to tell a food story about the Titanic. I thought that's what I do. I feel like I need to do my part and tell a story. And the thing that I could do best is tell a story about food or drinking wines, cocktails, champagnes. And I was trying to remember the other day how I stumbled across a list of items that were found at the resting site. And many of the bottles were still intact. I was so excited to find out about all the details about each of the bottles and uh, many of them. And Mm -hmm. I uh, pitched the story to wine enthusiasts and it ended up being a 250 word article. And uh, it's a really neat story. It was in the dead of winter in mm-hmm. 2017, I think it was January that winter I could be off, but somewhere around there. And it was a quiet Saturday night. And I got a text from a publisher mm-hmm. with a book company with Regnery publishing. And he said, are you the person that wrote this article for the magazine? And I said, well, yes, I am. He said, well, would you write a book about it? Yeah. And I thought, it's how what a dream. Story. Yeah. And I, I share it because so many people are pitching stories. Mm-hmm. You pitch away, you pitch away and you, you know, sometimes don't always land everything you pitch. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it just takes that one thing that is a, is a good idea that people really connect with. Yeah. So my next challenge was how am I going to get a, a book out of 250 words. Yeah, the book is a lot of content. Like what at the end of it, do you know the word count of your book at time at the publishing or around how many words it actually was? Uh, I don't, I'm trying to think of the words. I know that there were 300 some pages. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a, it's a book. I was just trying to give a comparison for like 250 words to X many because it's, it's a very arduous ask. It's a big undertaking. Yeah, it really is. And it, you, you have to really want to work hard if you want to do a book. Right. Um, so I was very blessed that this, this article was found and I thought, how am I going to turn this into a book? And I want to do it justice. And I want the, right. the project. I mean, and I want to do these people who were aboard the Titanic. I want to do them justice more than anything and right. be really respectful. So I thought, well, gosh, I love finding out about people. I've been a reporter, my, you know, since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I want to interview survivor relatives. I want to find out about the people yeah. who were on board, who had something to do with food. Mm-hmm. And I grew up learning about a guy who was on board. He lived in uh, my hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I lived there only for a little while. And then we moved about 30 minutes away to Wassa, but he lived in Merrill and he was an immigrant. What state is this? I, I don't know. Oh. Oh, that's right. I didn't tell you what state it's in Wisconsin. <laughs> okay. I'm horrible with geography, even my own state. So. <laughs> Me too. I know what you mean. Um, so yeah, Wisconsin okay. and Northern Wisconsin. So um, it was always interesting to me how he got on to the Titanic. Yeah. That's a bit of a journey. Yeah. In those days when everything was horse and buggy up in mm-hmm. Wisconsin where he lived and he was a popcorn vendor. So I, yeah, I was really tickled. I thought I finally get to tell the story of popcorn. Dan is what he went by. He was a um, third class passenger. He did not survive. I don't know his story. I I do know about a lot about his life Mm -hmm. and where he was going and where he was coming from. And um, I I had so much fun with this book, finding out about people Mm -hmm. like him. I found a letter in the Brooklyn oh. Daily Eagle. And is it is it the Brooklyn Daily Eagle or the Brooklyn Eagle? I think it's the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. You There's, said it confidently, so I'm going to go with whatever you say is correct. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Daily Eagle. I'm just drawing a blank there for a little bit of a hiccup there. But he wrote a letter to his friend who at that point was the dramatics editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And mm-hmm. He said, I'm going to be arriving in New York City. Um, he gave the date. It'd be great if you could meet me at the, now it's Chelsea Piers is where mm-hmm. they would have docked. I was so excited to find this letter online. Yeah. And it, or it, at that point, it was, I found it through the microfiche in the library. And right. the, the man was H.V. Coltonborn, also from my hometown. Okay. And he went, running into his editor's office the next morning and said, I have a letter from somebody from the Titanic. Wow. What a, what a thing to have. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so sad that he was never able to, to go and meet Dan, but he was going to hang out with him and they were good friends from school. I think Mm -hmm. where they met. Well, it wouldn't have been school probably because they were both adults. When Dan moved to Merrill, he was an adult. But it was, it was really neat to find those things and just little whispers from the past and to learn about these people. And it, Mm -hmm. you know, we actually found that there's some money at the, uh, I say we, because there's a lot of people that are huge fans of dance. There were, there was some money at the, at the resting site 
that was found that said Merrill on it. And Mm -hmm. back in those days, they printed their own money in the banks. Oh, cool. Yes. Yes. And so we, you know, many of us think that that's probably Dan's money, the dollar bills that were down there and that there were some coins and dollar bills. Wow. um, So, yeah, so it's, it's just been a, a wonderful adventure to, get to know these people a little mm-hmm. bit and uh you know it's just it's I always wondered you know how we would have connected if we would have been friends or right. I'm sure I would have visited with popcorn Dan on the on the sidewalk where he sold his popcorn and so that's really that's the story of how that all came together how it turned out the way it did that's really incredible because firstly I feel as though anyone who makes it his life mission to sell popcorn would be an excellent friend to have And secondly, this lends to why I personally have always had an interest with Titanic. It's, I've had its ebbs and flows over, you know, periods in my life and how stressed out I was, but it's always been that very human element. It's a human story to me at the end of everything, because there were people on that ship who were heading for the best of their lives. And there were some who were probably heading for things they didn't want to be greeting necessarily. It was every spectrum of emotion available and every kind of class of human on this ship to tell a different, different side of the story. You bring up such a good point. You know, we always just naturally assume we can imagine what the people were like and what they were thinking. But, you know, I, I think James Cameron did an amazing job depicting that, that, you know, there were people on board who were, um, in situations like Rose, where she was kind of getting into an arranged marriage, mm-hmm. uh, imagine the dread in her heart over that. And then she was the one who survived Yeah, and Jack didn't. And it just, it's, yeah, you, you've got to put yourself there and think about those types of feelings. Like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, some people have their criticisms of the film of Cameron's film and any film really. Um, but one thing you do have to admire is that, being able to tell a past narrative in a present friendly way keeps that connection alive because I know when I was, you know, younger, I'm going to say, you know, 10 and under history, quote unquote, as a concept was just an amorphous blob of things that happened at some point, very, very far in the past. And there wasn't really, you know, I was nine or 10 years old. Why, why would I care about exactly when in the past Egypt was versus, I don't know, gone with the wind time didn't really make sense, especially when you've only been alive for 10 years, that's all you have. But being, yeah, but being able to see a historical event that wasn't in grainy, choppy, black and white, that wasn't two seconds at a time, simply because that was the technology at the time, to see it lovingly and sort of through blood, sweat and tearsy reconstructed in a way that felt like you could reach out and touch it made the story real in a way that I think really drove up Titanic mania in the um, latter half of the nineties. Obviously that's when the movie came out. Yeah. I I think what made it so special is James Cameron really did his homework. He really nailed the research and, you know, there are so many great examples of that, of, Mm -hmm just little details. And that's really what the the secret is, the details. Yeah. What are some of the, speaking of details and people who did homework, you also did a lot of homework. 
But when you watch a movie like um, Cameron's Titanic, what are some of the like culinary details that you noticed in particular that you think, ah, I'm glad he included that because, you know, I didn't think that they would know that. Well, I was really glad that he included the lamb and mint because that those are uh, examples of the spring ingredients that were prevalent aboard the Titanic. Um, there were so many spring onions. Um, uh, there were all kinds of different things, English peas, things that were um, just becoming available in the springtime. And back then, that was such a bigger deal than now because Sure. If those things weren't available at certain times of the year, you just, you didn't get them. There was, there, right. we didn't have, you know, greenhouses and. There's and no microphones. strawberries in November. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I really loved that he captured that. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved the depiction of, of third class. I think he really did a great mm-hmm. job of highlighting that uh, Titanic was really special in that it was probably the first either the first or the first with Olympic or one of the first mm-hmm. ships of the time to have a third class that was really much more um, uh, suitable for traveling for people than right. it had been. Um, before the Titanic in third class, people would eat right where they slept mm. in most situations they'd have to bring their own silverware with them and wash it up in the same bucket. If you can imagine hundreds of people, you know, washing up their silverware and you hope that you're not at the end of that line because <laughs> the water barely got changed. And many Ugh. times they'd have to bring food for their whole family for 10 days, two weeks. That, that was a shocking fact for me to learn was that it's not that I was okay with the other facts, but then it was finding out that you had to bring your own food. That must've been very hard but also probably pretty expensive yeah and just the kind of unexciting foods that people must have packed and eaten for days but they did it they just they kind of sucked it up to get through the experience because so many of those people were immigrating to the emigrating to the United States as immigrants and right that's another thing that James Cameron really did his background uh, background check on there were so many different countries that were represented particularly in third class mm-hmm. and uh, there were Italians like the Italian who was traveling with Jack um, right. there, yeah he, he really brought that into the forefront I think for a lot of people for the first time to, to realize that. So those are a couple of things that I've noticed. I, I was flipping through your book and it happened to open on the gin and tonic recipe. And I shared it with a friend who is a gin uh, aficionado. And she said, it sounds really good, but what was with the proportion of alcohol? Because if I remember correctly, it was less than one ounce of gin to about seven ounces of tonic. And, you know, from her, from our 2022 sensibility, she's like, what the heck is that? Right. Right. And it's not the original recipe. Those Mm -hmm. recipes were contributed from, from various sources. And that was part of the fun of this project too, was to reach out to, um, places where I knew there were experts in pre-prohibition drinks um, and also places like, you know, in Southampton, for example, there are places that have active bars now and uh, some of those recipes are from there. 
the gin and tonic recipe, I need to look at it right now to, it's been a little while since I looked at that recipe to know what you're, to recall what you're thinking about. And I play roller derby and my teammate's name is Gin Demonic after um, gin and oh tonics. So <laughs> I've, yes, I of course had to send this to her immediately. And she was, she loved it. She thinks that the twisted nose gin bottle is beautiful and it sounds delicious, but she would like to know why there is such a light hand on the gin. Well, that's a good question. And I, uh, you know what, I'm going to find out. I'm going to reach back to the person that contributed it and get an answer um, if I can. I didn't um, think too much about that, but was it just, I don't know if maybe drinking culture is just so different now than it was then, or maybe drinks were, well, that was about to be the same question in a different wording. Yeah. And I, I do you see what page it is or uh, there I found it. Okay. Uh, oh, right. This is from the white star tavern in South. Right, right, right. Yes. I, so I was remembering it. I just wasn't remembering it for sure. And I clearly right, obviously didn't either. So. <laughs> and it's um, juniper berries and lavender mm-hmm. sprig. Oh, that's right. I love this recipe it so much. So I can't, so I can't drink. I have um, very sensitive stomach, but I used to be able to, and this sounds like it would smell amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. And um, I, I love to make it. I've actually got some lavender sprigs that I'm growing and I should make one of these soon. Um, but yeah, it's got a really nice um, aroma, aromatic mm-hmm. uh, element to it. And um, I love that recipe. It, it's one of my favorite. I love gin and tonics. I, I love them because my mother and I love to that was kind oh. of our, with the old fashioned, we always loved old fashions too, but um, you that's know what, cute. that's like uh, interesting. I'll have to take that back uh, and find out if I can get any information about how that recipe was developed, but I'm happy with it. I hope that mm-hmm. she was happy with it too. I think that I'm going to, we're the next goal is to try to get her a bottle of the actual gin so that she can actually try it at, um, at home because Yeah, I think I would be just curious because I know that, you know, today's drinking culture is often about how quickly can I get drunk? So it it will be very heavy on the alcohol usually. And that's kind of standard anywhere, I would I would think. But was drinking culture of the time much more like relaxed? Was it something you kind of did all day and you'd like nurse a cocktail or did you go through them quicker because you were hot so they couldn't be as alcoholic or am I making up a bunch of really odd questions no you're bringing up a really good point and you know I all I can think is that it was before prohibition so Mm. I would tend to my tendency to to think of it has always been that there wasn't this um as much as there is today sort of a um a taboo or a um conservative outlook on it there's there it was in those years in 1912 1911 1910 there were just starting to be undercurrents of you know conservative push against alcohol in fact one of the graphics in the book in my book um is of uh it's the weather bird from the st louis dispatch and 
he says, why not let hotels sell Bronx cocktails on Sundays? And I thought it was so cute. And it really is indicative of the time that they were, you know, it was, it was, it was more conservative than now. Absolutely. Um, but it, it wasn't sort of this, huh, it's, how do I, how do I explain what I'm getting at? Now that we've gone through prohibition and vestiges mm-hmm. of that still remain, it's almost sort of like a, you know, we, we know it's been forbidden in the past. Um, we, you know, you, there's a tendency to be a little bit more um, obsessive with it or com- more sure. compulsive with it because it was taboo in the past. But when they were traveling aboard the Titanic, there had never been prohibition. So there was right. never this, you know, it was never hard to um, come by. And it was never something that you couldn't get your hands on, except on Sundays, things, things like that. Sure. Well, of course, why would you need a heavy pour? You'd you'd never be out. I suppose that does make sense. If you've never had a scarcity, why act as though there was one? Right, right. And I know that what what I would expect is that there were just as many in proportion people that abused alcohol or were or needed alcohol. And there were also people that, you know, completely abstained. The same types of proportionate differences probably existed. One of the reasons that I would think that is um, I came across some information that indicated that crew members in that mm-hmm. time frame very often would make their own liquor on board in their huh. crew, crew uh, uh, quarters. And, you know, especially the kitchen staff would have access to wheat and right. to, um, you know, to, to grains and also to fruits. So right. um, it was schnapps that Charles Jockin was drinking, not whiskey like people have always thought. Um, I heard peppermint schnapps of all things. My gosh. I didn't know about the peppermint. That could be a rumor. Yeah. I hope it is because that sounds acrid. Well, it doesn't sound, I was always thinking peach. (laughs) That also doesn't sound great to be fair. (laughs) Peach or what would have been good? I don't know, a berry schnapps or something. I almost said cherry, but that sounded, that sounds worse actually. Yeah, it it does. It sounds really, it sounds like cough medicine maybe. Yeah. Like I'm thinking Vicks or or, um, Robitussin. Um, Gross. I know. I know. Let's, let's talk about more fun drinks here. Let's see. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there were distilleries on board these ships and, you know, I think that the party atmosphere that James Cameron depicted in his movie was probably very accurate. There were probably a lot of, you know, party nights and um, the the beer on board was by Wrexham Lager in an English uh, brewery. And um, we don't know for sure, but it's pretty well, pretty safe to assume that there was probably mostly beer in third class and, Um, in second and, and first class, there would have been, you know, more of the more expensive, more sophisticated drinks. That was actually something I'd written down on a piece of paper that I've lost, but I remember the question, which was, especially with things like drinks and cocktails, which was a primary foot was the primary focus of your book, really. Were there any drinks that would have been just absolutely off limits to certain classes simply because they were considered exclusive or they had ingredients that even if a person could afford it it just 
this is not for you. You are not welcome in this drink club. Oh, I would think for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, that's where we get that term beer budget. You know, the, mm-hmm. I'm sure just because, based on the affordability of alcohol and and the exposure too. If you're not traveling in first class, you aren't exposed to a Robert Burns cocktail and and you you know it's so much of what we learn about culture is from our friends and the people we spend time with and so it's easy to get into a bubble where you're only exposed to beer um it's very reminds me like in college there it was so unusual to have a a nice cocktail it was more just you know beer beer. yeah those good old keg parties and um, I, I don't think they would have been as exposed as like John Jacob Astor the fourth. And I hesitate right. to use him as an example. Cause I don't know if he was, I don't think he was a big drinker. I do know though, that John Jacob Astor the fourth mm-hmm. used to love to saber bottles of champagne at his parties. And so, and they had champagne at his wedding uh, right before the Titanic sailed a few months uh-huh. before he um, married Madeline and they she had was like few- 17 wasn't she and he was I don't know how old he was at the time I'd have to double check the exact date exact year but either 17 or 19 she was very yeah. young and he was in his late 30s, 30s or something to this day all of the St. Regis hotels around the world at five o'clock PM, wherever, whatever time that is, where they are, mm-hmm. they saber a bottle of champagne in the lobby. Is and then this, everyone gets a drink. Is the champagne drinkable after you've done that? Or do you not use that one? Cause there might be little bits of glass inside. Gosh, that's a good question. I've never thought of that. And I've, I've had a couple of those champagnes and well, I suppose I, they must be drinkable. <laughs> well, I think it's the clean cut. And I, I've never done it, yeah. but I, I can't imagine that there'd be a, a jagged cut because that's a very fair point. It, it, you'd see glass and every time I've seen it, it's, it's kind of like hot, hot off the top of the, where the cork is that, oh, wow. you know how the glass at the top where the cork is, is a little ridged mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's where they go to, to, uh, um, whack it off. And Um, it's a clean cut. That's impressive. I've never seen one done. I've only seen it in the movies. And I I guess in the movies, it doesn't really need to be a clean cut if it's not, if it's a prop or what have you. So that makes a lot of sense, but you know, because I've only seen it in films, my first thought was just, there's going to be glass all over the place. I'm also assuming that I'm the swordsman and I would be terrible at it. Well, you never know, you know, it'd be fun to try. There used to be, um, they, I don't know if they still do it, but pops for champagne here in the Chicago area, in right in Chicago, they would mm-hmm. savor there. And um, that was the first time I was exposed to it. So I did know what it was when I read about it. And I definitely wanted to include it in my book. John Jacob Astor IV also would get dressed up in French cavalier attire. <laughs> and he was a really fun guy. He, he loved to do things like that. And he was responsible for so many things that we still have today. Like he was the person who he introduced the red velvet ropes that help to control crowds at big events. Of course. Right. Yeah. And he uh, was one of the first, if not the first, 
I hesitate to say the first because I haven't right. confirmed that, but one of the first people, uh, developers to put a hotel or any type of business connected to a subway station. Huh. Um, I suppose someone yeah. did have to be the first. Yeah. <laughs> the Knickerbocker in New York City, there's still a door in the subway station that would have been the door that people would have gone through to get inside the hotel. And now wow. developers and entrepreneurs think of that all the time. Of mm-hmm. Make sure you're by a train station if you're going to open up a business. Well, he actually yeah. connected right to the subway. Wow. Knickerbocker. Is that where the Sunday comes from? The Knickerbocker glory? Oh. I don't know. Again, because I don't drink. I, of I course, my, my, my interests are on, you know, sweets. <laughs> well, let's but. see. Sweets. There's so many great sweets in my book. Um, you know, I'm tempted to make them all. <laughs> well, and one of the things I love to talk about is the baked apples, because mm-hmm. the baked apples were on several menus that I'm aware of, and they're so easy to make and so good mm-hmm. for you when apples are good for you. I don't know how good they are for you when you add in the brown sugar and the raisins and the nuts. But so SpongeBob said it's good for your soul. It, and it's, yeah, it's definitely good for your soul. <laughs> SpongeBob ought to know. And they're, it's a fall food. So I always tell mm. people you don't have to have a Titanic food only in the spring. You can have right. a fall, fall gathering with your friends and have watched the movie and have baked apples or apple meringue. Um, you know, apple Charlotte was on board. What's that? Uh, um, it's kind of like a, an apple, like a, it's an almost like an apple meringue. It's a little bit different. And it's, mm. um, the recipe isn't, I don't have a recipe for it in the book. There weren't recipes for these foods. So I sure, went sure. to people to give me their adaptations and, um, you know, I, I was really pleased with how it, it came together. I'm sure. I just randomly thought of this. A tea and coffee service back then was a much larger deal than it is now. You couldn't just blitz into a Starbucks, grab a latte and be on your way in five minutes. And that wasn't really the mood of the day. People weren't rushing to meetings to meetings. What was coffee right. and tea? What was that really like of well, between the class, I guess start with first class because that's what everyone's super curious about. But like, what what in an average day would your coffee and tea routine look like? Well, I think the most interesting area to look at is steerage, third class. Ooh, well, let's start Because there. what was really different in third class is that their big meal of the day was at noon, noon time. Mm-hmm. So 12, 1230, somewhere around there. This is how my grandparents always ate. They were very working class and uh, European descent. And they always have a great big meal at lunch with bread, butter, beef, gravy, potatoes, even on a Wednesday. Very filling and heavy. Very filling and heavy. And then they would eat like, you know, biscuits and cheese in third class. I'm talking about now where they'd Mm -hmm, eat mm -hmm. for supper and they called it supper. Dinner was at lunch and supper was at in the early evening, late afternoon. Okay. Um, and they'd have biscuits, gruel was on the menu, watered down um, oatmeal, kind of like an oatmeal, really watered down. Right, right. Um, biscuits, cheese, things like that, little mm-hmm. snacky foods. And then to hold them over to that meal, they'd have the tea and they'd have, mm-hmm. you know, the, 
you'd have their the tea, biscuits, and things like that late in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And then in the morning, they'd have a big breakfast. Right. But the the afternoon meals and the early evening meals were just very different. And that's why the tea was so important because it would hold right. them over. So it definitely makes sense if you know that that's going to be your big substantiator instead of, you know, as we do now, kind of like almost three equal size meals spread out over the course of your day. You no, know, some people vary, but yeah, if you have that knowledge that you have to go that time, especially during the day when you are active and you're up and moving, you would definitely allocate some sort of snack in there and tea makes sense. And in first class, they would have dinner very late, or, or I should say later, later than mm-hmm. the third class. Um, and then the tea would hold them over mm-hmm. by having the tea. And tea is so fun. I yes. saw in one of your posts that you, you love the Titanic tea that I do. Uh, isn't that great tea? It is. I'm just, I'm a tea person. I have my tea for one set that I got at the Titanic museum that I use pretty religiously. <sighs> it's, I love tea that that's kind of my go-to coffee is I don't, and never have like loved coffee. I know everyone else does. And I love that for you. Um, but I'm definitely a tea aficionado and I, had a feeling that especially black tea of that time would have been sort of the go-to for everyone at the time. That could be a guess on my part. And that's a good guess. Um, what is your favorite tea? So I really like Earl Grey tea. That's like my go-to. I would bet there was Earl Grey on board. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. That but- seems like a given. Yeah. Errol Gray, Black, probably, Current. Mm. Um, and one, one of my favorite teas is actually from London. It's Strawberry Fool. And it's oh. by, um, I can't think of the, the maker, but it's so good. That sounds really good. Is that, is that a black tea? It's not. It's a, it's a very strawberry tea. Ooh. And it's got a little bit of creaminess in it. And I love milk tea from, um, it's from from Asia and I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of this from Hong Kong I can't remember but it's so good powdery tea yeah I like um Thai iced tea is really good that's a oh, good isn't one. it good so good so not it's not good for you but it's absolutely delicious at least in in my opinion <laughs> um, mine too yeah I going back to the baked apple just because that for some reason randomly popped into my mind again but if someone wanted to make one and if they were foolish enough to have not purchased your book, what would be the easiest way to do that? What do you need to make a classic bake apple 1912 style? Cause I'm sure today there's 1400 variants. Well, you need four ingredients, okay. apples, and I would go with four so they can support each other in the pan. Mm-hmm. And you Specific need a specific kind of apple. Uh, I like Red Delicious. You can use Granny Smith. Mm-hmm. Honeycrisp is good anyway, right? Honeycrisp right. is my favorite. <laughs> and then brown sugar, mm-hmm. raisins, and nuts. And the nuts are optional, but you really do need the brown sugar. And I lied. Mm-hmm. I missed an ingredient. Butter. Ah. Good butter, not margarine, but good butter. Mm-hmm. Um, so five ingredients. Uh, I'm going to take that back. Five ingredients. <laughs> So you just want to core out your apple, 
-hmm. Real easy. You get an apple core. And if you don't have an apple core, don't worry about it. You can order one easily enough from Amazon, but you can also, if you're really careful and you use a dull knife that you're not going to get hurt with, Mm -hmm. and it's a small one, like a paring knife, you can just cut into the apple for around in a a square and pull that core out. Right. Right. Just be careful. Yeah. Be very careful. And you don't need to have the bottom you know, at the, at the very bottom, you don't need to have that closed, but it helps if you do. Um, but it's hard to get out the core without taking it all out. That's so fair. It's... That. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you put the four apples together in the pan and I use mm-hmm. a little square pan so that they get, you know, get supported a little bit mm-hmm. and you pack them really good with brown sugar raisins and the nuts if you want to use like crushed walnuts or chopped walnuts and then you put a butter pat on each top Mm -hmm. top of each one and you can put a splash of bourbon or brandy on top if you want um you don't need to but it's kind of fun to do that sounds like you do need to (laughs) yeah you you can soak the apples first in in a in schnapps or brandy or something like that and then you uh, would just do all this after you soak them and they mm-hmm. can be a little softer that way too, to, for the coring. Right. Um, and then you put them in the oven and um, I forget what the directions are, but it's like three seventy-five mm-hmm. or, you know, about 45 minutes to an hour. Right. Just let them bake away. And then you got, there's one requirement, six ingredients. You got to have whipped cream or ice cream with them. I was going to say, what do you serve it with? Because there, there must be something just to temper that richness at this point. Yeah. And, you know, raisin rum ice cream or Ugh. a Chantilly cream is always really good. It's, it's actually better. I think with the ice cream, it's a little thicker than mm-hmm. the Chantilly cream. The Chantilly cream will run down quicker when right. it's over something warm like that. But it's, um, it's, you got to have some kind of cream. That sounds so good. But um, speaking of ice cream, your book touches on this too, is that that was, that was pretty new on board ships and Titanic was the first or one of the first to have the facilities for, for ice, ice cream. Yep. And there was an ice man or at least one pe- person we know who was on staff dedicated to preparing the ice, making sure there was enough ice and um, Adolf Matman was from Switzerland, mm-hmm. a young boy, first job. He was so excited. He said that he How wanted, he? I think he was 19, pretty Aww. sure he was 19. Yeah. And he said, if I can get this job on the Titanic, I'll be able to get a job at any restaurant in London. Oh, so, yeah, I know. And it's so, such a great story about how important it was to these people to get these jobs. Yeah. And how much it meant to them. And unfortunately, Adolf did not survive. And um, I've gotten a lot of information from his, uh, from the people that live in the community he lived in, mm-hmm. in Switzerland. They really embrace the legacy, their, their Titanic connection, which is Adolf Matman. That's amazing. What do they, what, what's his story? What do they have to say about him? What do they want everyone to know about him? Just pretty much the way I described it, that's it in a nutshell. Um, He was a really ambitious kid, wanted to get out and explore. And and he's 
that story is very indicative of many of the crew members. Yeah. And I, I feel as though that's an important story too, is that for many of these people, it was a job, Um, you know, not to say that he wasn't necessarily excited to be on Titanic, but it was probably more of the notion of, I get to have this specific kind of position. I'm at the forefront of culinary technology. And on top of it, as an added bonus, I'm on this bloody ship. But, you know, I'm sure that for him, maybe that was secondary, but it was what it represented. What it represented. Exactly. Because that was really what what made the Titanic so like what did they do what was special that they were able to have ice cream that no one else did was it just that they had freezers what what went into making sure that they could have fresh ice cream in the middle of the Atlantic in you're bringing up a good point because yes the electricity had a lot to do with it however Mm. there's also the fact to consider that um, they went to great extent to have a French concessionaire actually it was Italian Luigi Gatti but he is fantastic so isn't it I love it's so smooth I I love gelato I don't I uh I don't remember when I first tried it but it's just I love it I love um Talenti gelato yes they're so good closest to Italy I think you can get um but the uh the French restaurant staff and um all the different French foods. There was such an incredible influence. And so the ice cream was probably part of that as well of mm-hmm. you know, making this a really great culinary experience for passengers. Yeah. Because that must be something that was really exclusive at the time because, you know, that sort of technology was really new and then maybe not every I can see where some other lines might be like, yeah, I'm not going to invest the money in that until I know it works because it yeah. could have been, you know, maybe they could have gotten in the middle of the ocean and been like, Oh, actually this doesn't work when we're not close to land. Well, get all right. You know, I'll tell you, Alexia, when I look at that ship behind me, I can see it there mm-hmm. now. Isn't it hard to believe that that many people were on there and all this stuff was happening on it? It's as people keep pointing out, it's its own universe. It's its own society. It's its own microcosm. And it is for seven days because for those seven days, even though you are exactly who you are, you don't have home base. You don't have that network of friends or comfortable places. You can't have an argument and go to your comfortable spot down the street. You're in the middle of nowhere and there's a bunch of strangers around you. It must have been a very, very exciting and also for some people, probably a very scary experience. I'm sure, especially if, like I would think for a third class more than yeah. anywhere. Um, you know, one of the ways that I learned about what was on the menus is by reading letters that were sent home from people that boarded in Southampton and then when the Titanic docked in Cherbourg. Mm-hmm. They were able to mail their letters. Because not um, many actual menus themselves really survived, right? Right. And then particularly in third class, of course, which is, right. um, you know, a, 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 an example of, you know, where we see that there weren't that many people that were able to survive. But these letters talked about, people talked about in these letters, the foods that they ate, 
Mm-hmm. And um, one of my favorites was written by Adelpha Selfeld, who did survive. And he um, was carrying perfume samples with him that were found only recently oh. at, the, at the resting site. And he wrote wow. home about the, um, the uh, apple dessert that he had and um, the, the uh, beer that he drank, mm-hmm. the pork chop that he ate wrote home to his wife. And so those letters are really telling of the foods. Some of the menus were actually postcards that people would mail home. And the postcard would be, the front would be the menu. And then on the other side, they would write their message and the address. And so- That's actually really neat. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they made those at the time. I keep waiting for some airline or- cruise ship now to do that I think that would be really fun especially cruise ships I've I've been on a cruise before and I remember being impressed with the food and I definitely hadn't paid for I I was in college I definitely hadn't paid for any upgrades or anything but I just remember being astounded at the food and how much there was and you know this is in the 2010s sometimes sometime when you know cruise lines have become their own massive industry yeah yeah, maybe they do that and I don't even know it, but not the one um, I'm aware of. Yeah. Well, um, there were there were many different things like that that we have. And one of one of the things um that happened was that people would tuck a menu away in their pocket and they had it mm-hmm. for lunch or dinner that day. And then that was their coat that they grabbed to to get in a lifeboat. And one ah. of my favorite menus was the one that Elise Lurette saved. And the reason I love it is because it's so telling of her and her preferences. Um, she crossed out one of the, in the menu items from lunch, which was Welsh rarebit. And I thought, what is Very that? heavy. I don't exactly know what it is, but I, I think I looked it up at one point in time and remember thinking that is a lot. Yeah, very heavy. Like it just kind of sinks into your tummy. It's like a meat um, and cheese thing, isn't it? Meat, cheese, and some breading, or am I making up a different dish? Well, close. You're right on close. It's not with the meat so much, although you could add some prosciutto or something if you wanted to. But it mm-hmm. more traditionally is a sliver of apple or pear or mm-hmm. something like that in between. But it's bread. It's an open-faced mm-hmm. cheese sandwich, pretty much. It's bread toasted, and then over that. There's a cheese mixture made with um, beer and several different cheeses melted down and poured over the bread and broiled paprika on top. I love to put paprika on it. And then, like I've said, the sliver of apple is optional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you can make it taste really tasty, but sounds least, amazing. Yeah, they're really good and um, very filling and fun for a like winter's it. night. Um, and, you know, the, the, anniversary of the 25th anniversary of the movies coming up in December. So <laughs> I'm thinking of all these wintry foods to make for a movie party night or something. Right. I, that would be a really good one. And especially cause I, I live m- mostly in Maryland and around that time would be able to go pick fresh apples to yeah. really be able to get that right. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting too, speaking of the different seasons, mm-hmm. there was also um, tur- roast turkey and stuffing served in second oh. class. 
and cranberry sauce. Very uh, fall. Very yeah, fall to me. Very fall. <laughs> yeah. And so you can kind of do a Thanksgiving type of dinner and have it be a Titanic dinner. You don't have to make an 11 course meal. You, yeah. you, know, you can do these fun things. One of the things I like to do is I like to have for when I have friends over for cocktails or something, or Mm -hmm. um, just to visit, um, I'll have the cheeses that were always served for lunch. The same assortment of cheeses every day. And just by doing little things like that, um, you can, you know, have a little touch of the Titanic in your, in your gathering. What were the cheeses then that were served every day? Well, let me get the list out there. One of them was um, Camembert and uh, Cheshire Saint Evil, which is a soft, like a cream cheese. And mm-hmm. I hope I can find this. I have so wanna... many friends, including myself, that are very, very, very large fans of cheese. And I'm, I'm already now planning out things that I am going to do for the 25th watch party that I will be hosting either alone or with friends. (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, that's exciting. That is really exciting. Yeah. It's, it seems like a fun thing to do, but cheese is also especially, I think that's a good staple to have almost any season because it can be light or you can do something really heavy. Like my dad loves a baked brie. If you want to get really robust, you can go that route. Otherwise, you can do light things to pair with, you know, white wine or something. Exactly. Um, Roquefort was one of them. Uh, there, were, there were about eight different ones. And wow. um, it didn't pop out at the full list and pop out at me. And I won't need to go into all of them anyway. But um, it's a concrete list. It's a very mm-hmm. dedicated assortment. And uh I love it that it sort of tells us about what, what the trends were in the, mm-hmm. the time in the cheeses. Is there anything cheese or not cheese? Is there anything that was like a major staple of the, the food of that time that we just, we don't have it now either because it's illegal or unhealthy or extinct or whatever the case may be that would absolutely shock people from 1912. They would just be like, what, what, what do you mean you don't have blank anymore? How do you live? I would pick tripe. I would yeah. refer, I would pick that as a, a example of something. Uh, tripe was very common in third class. It was on the menu and, um, and it still is in many cultures and societies, but right. for uh, our culture, Many people have never even heard of it. Or they and, have, they, they, they just know it's quote unquote icky. Yeah. Or it's not for, for, it's not as socially accepted as it would have been that. Well, that is uh, fair. As it was then. Yeah. It was, no one thought anything of it. And now I don't think people would be as accepting of it. And another one is one that I mentioned already, which is the gruel. I think, of people nowadays would say, what? You're not going to give me gruel. That just sounds like gruel, you know, but interesting. It was a menu item then it was like, you know, it had a totally different connotation. So now it's, now it's, you know, you say you're going to give somebody gruel. It's a punishment. Right. Right. And back then it was like, oh, we're having gruel tonight for dinner. Like, and when you think about it, it sounds kind of pretty if you didn't know 
all the negative connotations, you might right. actually like it. That it was this prison food or whatever the designation is. That's re- that's really interesting because yeah. I think one of the points that can be made is that things aren't all that different. People have always liked coffee and tea and alcohol and good food. But that there are just as in any, as in fashion, as in writing, as in anything, there are trends and they are visible and notable, especially when you plot them back. Definitely. Yeah. Cows have three stomachs and one of them is what people go to to make the tripe and they, Mm -hmm. they, it's a whole process of, you know, resting the tripe in in a milk, um, letting it, you know, tenderize in, in the milk and, um, I actually got to know one of my dearest friends now through Facebook and Instagram mm-hmm. by reaching out to her through Facebook for her grandmother's tripe recipe for the book. And really? Yeah, she's in South Africa and it's Ooh. winter there now. She's you know posting about the winter sunsets and you would love her. She posts on Instagram and she's a, a, mm-hmm. a wonderful food blogger and Ooh. her name is um, Sonia and um, she's just been so fun. I I'm in touch with her every day. Oh, that's awesome. It's, yeah. This, this research really was extensive, but it mm-hmm. really connected me with some amazing people. And I think that to me sounds like the most rewarding part is being able to connect on something you love and connect with people everywhere. Cause I, I'm not going to lie to you. If you had asked me, where do you think my tripe recipe came from? I don't think I would say from a friend you met online in South Africa, I'm probably <laughs> sure I'd say, I don't know, some old cookbook from somewhere. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's unexpected little, little connections. And I believe that those are also what help keep the legacy of Titanic really alive and relevant year after year after year. It's it's the people that Mm -hmm. keep that alive. And I'm so grateful that I've gotten to know so many people like you and others who keep the memory of these people alive. It's just terrific. I remember the first time I, cause you were on, um, LA Beatles, this podcast, unsinkable, the Titanic pod. And I remember I'm not one of those people that often reaches out just if I'm a fan, I like, I like to have a quote unquote, a reason. I don't know. Otherwise I feel like I'm bothering people, but I sent her an email just telling her my Titanic story. And I figured nothing would happen of it. Cause also I'm like, she's probably gonna be like, oh, okay. And, but she wrote me back. Isn't she terrific? She's amazing. I actually get to interview her in a couple weeks and I'm probably going to scream. I'm going to have to like dance in the car beforehand. So, (laughs) Oh, I'm so excited to hear that for you. That's going to be great. Yeah, because she also completely takes a different approach where she has a topic and a script and researches like a real professional. But I, it was that notion that you can reach out and just connect with somebody or or like with you is that I, is I could buy your book and then I'm talking to you. It's like, what? Oh, this is an amazing ability to be able to make these connections and find common ground across different things. Like I'm not a food writer. I was an English major and then I got my business degree. You know, I, I don't have a culinary history. I have a Titanic interest. And yet I've, I picked up your book because I heard about it and it sounded really fun. And I like to think it is a fun book and a positive a fun book. angle on, you know, these 
really tragic stories, but yeah. it, it just goes to show you that there's a light in everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think we all want to find that light for the Titanic stories because yeah. they're so important and we want to keep them alive. They are. And things like, <clears throat> excuse me, things like food and drink, especially. And I think now that you know, people are beginning to socialize a little bit more, even if they're, you know, doing so still cautiously because, you know, the pandemic is still going, you know, food and drink are one of the things that that's what you do with your friends when you want to meet, you know, can you come to happy hour? Can you come to dinner? Can you come to brunch? Can you come for drinks? It's how we connect with people. And it's how, you know, it's just the simple ways of bonding with people. And I, you know, when people decide to have their Titanic party, I know that maybe there's some people in the fandom that think that's frivolous or silly, but to them, it's their way of saying, I am honoring this memory in this way. Exactly. Keeping those memories fresh and sharing them, sharing those stories. And it's really great that there are people like you in LA who are doing that very well. I haven't done it yet, but I mean, I, I really appreciate the thoroughness that she puts into her podcast. And I also appreciate the breadth because deviating from food, drink, and, and books a little bit, I talked to um, somebody else um, recently and they brought up the point that people who came to the um, Titanic community in the camp um, via the Cameron film often get sort of kicked down or looked down on in a way and I'll, I'll say that I'm I'm 33 I was eight or nine I can't do math at the time that the movie came out so my question you know it's like I don't know how else I would have been expected to find Titanic in that day and age you know it would have been very hard to avoid the Cameron film and find it via a book it was it was simply everywhere mm-hmm. and I think that that's really unfortunate to try to instantly bar people out of the community simply for how they found it because you know the Cameron film's not a documentary you can't learn everything from it but what it can teach you is that this was a thing that happened and it affected so many lives yeah exactly and it it really is well researched really well and right right spot on with you know almost 100% of the things and so I, I think it was so great the way the um the clothing, you know, the fashion was mm. depicted and um, just uh, one of my favorite scenes from any movie ever was seeing Rose get out of the vehicle and go to board the Titanic in that fabulous outfit. I saw recently in the Titanic subreddit, someone posted, what is your favorite Rose outfit? And just, I think the, I think that pinstripe car outfit just swept it like the Oscars. Oh, uh, just exactly. And can you imagine how much fun she had wearing those clothes? All those oh my clothes. gosh. They're so beautiful. And I think with Rose, because she's the main character, obviously everyone focuses on her outfits, but for people like, like her mother, I know that I think I read in Cameron's thing that they played a little bit with Rose's wardrobe. Like I think most women of the day would have had a hat and she wears it one time. How accurate were the other outfits? Were they really oh, they- note perfect? I think so. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When you think of the newspaper boy hats in third class yeah. and the top hats and, um, you know, the bowlers and mm-hmm. um, for the women, those, those wonderful, um, the, you know, the, the hats that they wore were mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, it was really spot on. 
I feel like by today's standards, those hacks would be quote unquote ridiculous, but that was very, that just was of the time. It was about how big is my hat and how, how much more grand is it than yours? Yes. And then there were the hats too, like the Mary Poppins look. Mm. I always tell people, if you're looking for a, you know, Edwardian outfit, think of Mary Poppins in that broad rimmed hat with the little, real short, um, top of it the little brim um you know that's a really good example right there that's a beautiful hat with the with all the clothes and what have you what was the prime like for young women obviously again rose being the biggest most modern example that there is but what was the ideal silhouette at that time i know that it was kind of transitioning out of the victorian style much more like big hip bustle skirt and into this more this is the empire waist is what it's called yeah empire 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 waist very much so you just nailed it empire was big and very Mm -hmm. um more sleek compared to the victorian lines they were more straight Mm -hmm. um you know there was there were still dresses and skirts with a little bit of a train and some instances but for the most part that sort of voluminous look of the victorian years had really um morphed into a more um sleek more a-line um appearance they were every dress she wears except the sinking dress i will say looks like it gives you a very small footprint though is that by design I don't know if it is. That's a good question. Like she takes really small steps. And, you know, I'm thinking oh, to like yeah. my, my favorite skirt is I like a big twirly princess Disney nonsense skirt, but there's, you know, there's no limits. I could do the splits in that if I want, if I were flexible enough to do that. But, you know, in the scene, I remember her running to, to the back of the ship. I, I remember even thinking that her footsteps seemed like not like she wasn't running all out. And I think it's just because the circumference of her skirt was, it was an A-line skirt. They're not meant to be voluminous and you're not meant to be pelting down to the stern of a ship in those. You bring up a really interesting point. And in fact, just a few years before the Titanic, a new trend was set. It, it was a very, not everyone embrace this trend but it's Lucille controversial one. yeah it's the hobble skirt and women actually ah. fell down because they were literally tied up at the ankles yeah. and Lucille Carter wore the hobble skirt which was known for her fashion sense and she and her husband were the owners of the Renault car that was the one that you know the steamy windows scene in the movie oh. and um and she was known for her you know really trendy style and fashion and that hobble skirt being popular would make sense with you know what you're making note of that um they probably did have more narrow steps mm-hmm. the step that they could take was more narrow because of the narrow skirts Feel like she wouldn't be able to get into or out of her own car with the hobble skirt. There's a there's a there's right. more than one step there. Yeah, and there were stories of women getting into 
accidents because of sure. wearing their hobble skirts. <laughs> so, 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 I, cause I've seen them before. I mean, like I've not seen them in person because thankfully I've never seen a human being wear one. I'd question their sanity, but you know, you've seen in museums and what have you. And I, you just look at that and think the second you encounter a cobblestone that you didn't see your day is ruined. Yes. Yeah. Gosh. I don't, it, it's hard to believe, but it's hard to believe too. You know, when I was in my twenties, I was required to wear you know, pantyhose skirts, heels. Uh, it was unheard of to wear pants. Sure. You know, absolutely unheard of to wear pants to work. So, um, you know, it's, it's amazing how these things change. Right. And then you think way back, you can't hardly believe some of the things people wore. It is wild. And I I think you touched on this a little bit with LA and her interview and that especially women's clothing were basically designed sans corset, even that you just could not get yourself into or out of them in comparison to say a modern day even like a full coverage dress, you know, a typical long sleeve, maybe skater style skirt. How restrictive in comparison would a long sleeve, long skirt dress of that day be? Well, they loosened up throughout the years and mm-hmm. not as, not as um, tight and restrictive as the Victorian dresses and mm-hmm. uh, in the years prior but still somewhat restrictive. And, uh, and then after that era, things got even a little bit looser and, and now we don't really wear anything like that anymore. And it's certainly right. not on a daily basis. Of course, it's basically, I mean, I know that again, as fashion was changing, I'm sure that as the Empire waistline became much more popular, corsets may have become less popular because they give you that hourglass figure. And if you're looking for the, the column style figure, that may be counterintuitive to what you're doing. But in 1912, for women in first and second class, were you, it was basically expected, was it, that you would wear a corset? Or was that mostly a first class thing? And everyone else was kind of free to breathe. You know, I would think it would depend on the outfit. If you were wearing something that, you know, even if you, even maybe someone traveling in steerage might have had a a corset for certain outfits. That is Um, a very good point. Of some, it's surprising some of the people that were traveling in third class, there, Mm -hmm. some of them had means um, and they, they might very well have had an outfit that would have worked with a corset. That's a fair point. I'm sure there are some people that just couldn't justify the cost of a first class ticket who may have had right. the money, but simply just didn't want to spend it on that. Right. And, you know, um, I would think for the most part, though, there weren't a lot of women wearing corsets, but that's fair. Um, yeah. I've actually never looked into that. And it's interesting to think about it. Because I know, again, that scene, there's that scene in um, the Cameron film where Ruth is lacing Rose into her corset. So it's, you know, very obvious that whatever outfit she's about to put on that is required. But in something like her, the, the sinking dress or even the I'm flying dress, which again has that very obvious um, of her waistline, it seems like a corset may have worked against the look you were trying to give yourself. For sure. Definitely. I know like if I were for whatever reason attempting to look like a column I don't think that I would go reaching for any a cincher that's not a silhouette we're looking for at least I'm not looking for these days but right. power to you if it is 
I think we love to talk about this topic because it really helps us connect with these people and understand them better and what their life might've been like. And it, it just makes us connect more with that time Mm -hmm. and understanding the clothing, the foods, the music. Yeah. uh, The music. I read, you know, this, the, the accepted narrative seems to definitely be it was nearer my god to thee but there's a lot of people who argue that the final song was just a regular choral piece called autumn or the autumn song and that's what i would tend to think based on my research I agree. edith rosen you you think so too i do yeah uh, edith rosenbaum russell pointed out the very important point that mm-hmm. the the band members even said one of them ran into his friend Violet Jessup in the stairwell. Jock the nurse. Uh, yeah. And he said, we're going to go and cheer people up a little bit. We're going to play a few songs to cheer people up. Mm-hmm. So it really would contradict that mission to cheer people up by playing mm-hmm. Near My God to Me. Yeah. It would be like saying, I'm going to play you happy birthday and then playing somebody taps. Yeah, exactly. And Edith pointed out that, you know, they never would have done that because they didn't want people to lose hope. Hmm. You know, and and it, when we think of like, how do people face what we think might seem like certain death at the time that it would certainly seem like certain death. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone ever accepts that until, right. you know, until they have to. But I mean, it, I do think that everyone on board was hoping that they would survive. Oh, you know, gosh. that I, hope, I can imagine. Just by yeah. some chance that maybe that lifeboats are going to come back for you, just for yeah. you. Gosh, yeah. I can imagine. But like, I'm 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 a violinist. I'm classically trained, and oh. I will say I know that a lot of people's you know I, the argument was like, well, as they were just as they were going to the water and they knew they were going to die, they might have played a hymn. Like at the angle that ship was, the band would have had to have stopped playing kind of long before that moment happened because there's simply no way you'd be able to have traction to stand and hold your instrument and so right. it makes sense to me that they would have stopped at a time when they were still playing cheery music and that's why I personally have come to the exceptionally knowledgeable conclusion that it might have the final song might have been autumn because there's a point where you are simply you, you can't do it. You need your hands to hold yourself in place. You saw that in, in the film as people eventually started to hold on to things. And a violin requires two hands. Yeah. And that's amazing that you're a violinist. How neat. I, yeah, I, I love the instrument. It, and, you know, I think there was always a little bit of a little pride in hearing the story of Jock Hume be like, that's a violinist spirit for you. I mean, we're not all, we're not all nice, but like, you know, it's, it is nice to see yourself in, or to see a little bit of something that, as you say, that you can connect with, where it's like, I also play the violin. And then I think I I get to ask myself that question, like, gosh, would I have popped it out of its case and tried to calm folks? Or would I have kissed my violin goodbye and made a run for it? You don't know until you face that. I think yeah. that's, that, that, I, that's the true, I believe the true intrigue of it is that we can research this all we want. Like I can, I could learn everything I wanted about Jock Hume and, and basically build an AI of him if I wanted to. And I'd still never be able to accurately predict what me, I would do 
in that kind of situation simply because I've never encountered it. And I really hope that I never do. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I really <laughs> do. And if you do encounter it, that you have a, a positive outcome and, mm-hmm. um, you know, even the people that didn't have a positive outcome, they, yeah. in a way they kind of did many of them because of the legacy they left behind with the way mm-hmm. they helped people like uh, major Archibald, Butt was known mm-hmm. to be a gentleman to the end and helping women into lifeboats. One mm-hmm. of them said that it was like, she felt like she was being tucked in for a motor car ride. Um, and I thought, what a, what a wonderful man he must've been to give her that feeling. What a gift to give somebody during the, the most harrowing night of their life to make them feel as though their step to salvation was just like getting into, getting into a motor car. Yeah. Yeah. Must have been, and you know, I, my personal sort of, I guess, Titanic hero is, um, first officer William Murdoch, um, because he operated on the women and children first. And because of that allowed many men onto the boats when there were none nearby and that saved a lot of people. And it's those little stories that you hear about people that help you feel connected because it's people doing their jobs. Like Joaquin was a violinist. Murdoch was an officer. These are people that were simply doing what they were supposed to do, quote unquote, but they were doing so in the face of a circumstance that if it were ever acceptable to just abandon post, it would have been then. Right. Yeah. Well, it's so good to talk with you about this. I, I you can tell I, I love it as much as you do. And I, I really want to thank you so much for this conversation. Oh gosh, thank you so much for coming on. I am definitely going to have to have you back in the future because I have a feeling. I would um, love it. I my friend and I are going to be doing that little party together where I'm making recipes from your book and she's making recipes from a different book and she bought a different Titanic tea. So we're going to have a little taste sample and I have a feeling we're going to have questions out of that. <laughs> oh, you guys are so fun. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm really excited. But once, thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, It was amazing to talk to you. Um, You too. Guys, I cannot (laughs) overstate how well the interview went and how excited. I was to be able to talk to Veronica. And if you want to get in touch with her, um, her name is Veronica Hinky, and that last name is spelled H-I-N-K-E. You can get her book um, or get in touch with her through her website, which is www.foodstringer.com. That's F-O-O-D-S-T-R-I-N-G-E-R.com. And you can find her on Twitter. Uh, the username is Food Stringer, all one word. Instagram is also Food Stringer, F O O D S T R I N G E R. And she is on Facebook as Facebook.com slash V Hinky. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word Titanic Talkline, T I T A N I C. T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!